Welcome to the Foundation Podcast. My name is Simone Scott and I'm going to be sharing some South African stories of hope with you. My goal is to give you more information about the great things that people out there are doing to improve our country. For this episode, we travel to a suburb of Durban called Cato Manor to meet with Lizzie Mkize who runs Masi Bambisane, an organization that she runs out of her house. This woman and her husband John provide an important service to a struggling community by allowing members of the community to come for all kinds of important and vital medical tests, including HIV AIDS tests and blood pressure tests. People can also collect their essential medicines right from Lizzie's home. For many patients, this helps them adhere to their medication because they're able to avoid the long queues at the clinic. Plus, they can also collect from Lizzie during non-traditional office hours because she opens her home in the evenings and over weekends. Masiba Misane offers this important service to their community without the help of any additional funding. My interview with Lizzie was a bit unusual because it was the first one that I conducted with the help of a friend. When I mentioned that I was planning on traveling to Cato Manor for my next, next episode to a group of my friends who knew the area, they recommended that I don't go alone because they don't consider it to be a safe area. I decided to take their advice, despite the fact that I felt a bit weird about it. I mean, how many people live in Cato Manor and travel to and from there every day with no incident and also no choice in the matter? But anyway, I thought about it and decided that some company might actually be nice. So I chatted to my neighbor and asked him if he would be willing to go with me. And much as I would like to say I would have been completely okay to go on my own, I was very happy to have someone along for the ride. He drove us there in his big Land Rover, allowing us to park on the pavement, taking away the whole stress of finding a place to park my much smaller car. And honestly, it was just great not having to navigate an unfamiliar area all on my own. Cato Manor is a densely populated area. We drove past many informal houses on the way to Masibambisane, where we were greeted by the friendly faces of John and Lizzie Mkize. As you will hear through the course of this interview, Lizzie is a jolly person, despite the extremely tough circumstances she's had to face in life. She's had a very interesting journey that brought her to this place. Uh, I came from a colored community in Wentworth. Um, it's my second marriage to John. I was married for 14 years in an abusive relationship. Uh, I've got three kids from the previous marriage, which they all add out now. <laughs> Two of them got babies, only the other one doesn't have. Uh, I also worked in the medical field. I worked at St. Augustine's at, in Tambini Hospital, uh, assisting in the wards, retrieving medication for clients, feeding them making up beds and stuff like that. And I just felt that now I think it's time to move to another area now. Uh, I want to work hands-on in the community. But also during that time, it was difficult for me because I was a people's person. And then my, my husband was one of those people that you're not allowed to talk to men because you married. You just look at me and no other man you must talk to and stuff like that. Uh, it became so bad and there was times when, you know, we, we as women always think of our kids first. Uh, if I file for a divorce, uh, what will happen to the kids and stuff like that. But then I like had to make a choice and I felt okay 
they're all doing their last year in school. So I think it's time for me to move out. I, I can't carry on because he used to stalk me. He used to send people to do away with me. It was over jealousy, I can say. And I mean, even if I'm at work, somewhere one of my colleagues will spot him and say he's around and now I must be careful who I'm speaking to and things like that. And it was just like no communication even at home. I remember the one year when uh, I first filed for the divorce and then I had to file for custody for the kids. And the poor kids had to go through all that dilemma now, going to the children's court. And fortunately, the eldest one, because she was born in 84, so she was speaking on behalf of the younger ones. And like even intimidating the children and uh, behind my back, yeah, I am there at the court now with the prosecutor and suddenly I just see these children. I don't know where they came from. Actually paying them to actually be talk negative against me. And then I uh, applied for maintenance, which I knew it was going to be another hill climbing because it was just all about him and his money. And he didn't want to even pay maintenance. He said he can only pay 150 rand per child. And the, these children were in high school. There was food, there was toiletries, there was everything needed for these kids. And went on and went on. And when we had the case, he, he, he actually brought an old salary slip and lucky this prosecutor, she didn't care whether you were staff here in the court or whatever. And she said, hey, listen, this is an old salary slip you are bringing. Where's the latest one? This is not how much you're earning now. And even with that, he gets paid on the 15th. He would put the children's money on hold and later through the following month, in the middle of that month, because now even the workers were so frightened of him. As Lizzie speaks, it becomes clear that her life with her former husband was incredibly tough. Hearing her tell the story, it seems that for quite a while she didn't really think there was any way out. And then when she was finally out of the relationship, things didn't just magically fall into place for her. She still had children to raise, and she had to do so much of it on her own. But things did change for her again in a good way a few years later. She met her current husband, John because their daughters were friends. And in John, she found a partner who also cared for other people, someone she was able to work alongside and pursue her passion along with. And so it was, we set our wedding date, we were both not working. We both worked for the community. I got someone that was my match now because he was all out for the community as well. And his wife had died around 2003 and he brought up his kids to in those difficult situations until they also finish matric and everything. So our stories were more or less the same. And we've been going down the same rocky road, both of us. Anyway, we got married in 2006, in August, the 5th of August. And then moving here to Cato Man, and I thought to myself, I don't go work under a boss. I just want to do things in my time, help the community. I've got so much experience, so much things that have been happening to me.
and I want to do something now for the community. It wasn't easy to come into a black community, but anyway, from 2006 until now, and we started the work with John and then also looking at the Cato Manor Clinic because it's down opposite the police station. That's how far it is from here, the local clinic. And then we spoke to Match. That time they were RHRU. They had offices here in Daimlin, there next to Westridge, just near the spa. And then a coloured lady there that was in charge. And then I said, hey, I want to do home testing. Can you help me? I've, uh, I've got all, I've learned all about these things and I want to do that now. Then she said, no, it's not a problem. And that's when we signed the MOU and then we started doing the home VCT. That was from 2007 until now. And then the work has just grown over the years. I asked Lizzie why she cared so much, why she was so determined to provide a service to this community. And she explained how her dream to start a central chronic medicine dispensary or CCMD was born. During my, my uh, abuse of life, uh, been uh, under depression, uh, high blood pressure, meningitis, then I found out I was also HIV positive. Uh, that was later in 2006. So then I felt, well, I think now this is my platform where I can stand and tell other people where I come from. And that HIV is not a death sentence. You can still achieve a lot of things. and. Uh, I just thank God because I've achieved so much from that time until now. And it was in, a, in, in my heart that I don't know how long God is going to keep me. Uh, at least one day before the CCMDD came about, it was my, my goal that at least one day uh, the community can assess medication from my, from my site. Remember when... when uh, uh, the ARV started, they were not rolled out at the local clinics. They were only rolled out at the government hospitals. So I also started picking mine up from Winchwood Hospital. And then I think that's when government saw now people don't have money to travel. So they must utilize the local clinics in the area. So people must use those clinics. So whoever came from a certain catchment, they told you, you in Cape or Manny, there's no need for you to come to Wentworth Hospital or the Bluff anymore. Go to your Cato Manor clinic. So they've been transferring people back to where they are actually living. That's the, so they don't default because there was a lot of defaulters because people were not having bus fare to travel every day. We can get very busy and uh, sometimes even the people are visiting because it's 24 hours and who, who's going to want to go sit in that queue at the clinic because you're following each queue there at the clinic. It doesn't matter what you're going for, whether you're going to extract your tooth or your baby's getting immunized or you're going for your contraceptive, you've got to follow the queue. Yes. But even though she was now able to do the work she loves, it still wasn't easy. So also with the people, yeah, because now even for if they need uh, the emergency services, they come here yeah, at any time 
I would never turn anybody away. Irrespective of you hate me or what you said about me. But at the end of the day, it's about humanity. It's how you, 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 you show yourself as, as an activist or someone in the community that is bold. So if someone's throwing a rock at you, you just start that rock and let it go over and you stand up again in front of them. <laughs> it seems that Lizzie's past and everything she's been through has bred a strong sense of compassion in her heart. I mean, to my mind, she's pretty amazing. She realized that she'd contracted HIV through no fault of her own while feeling attracted in a marriage where she suffered abuse. A marriage she really struggled to finally escape. Also, she was diagnosed in 2006, at a time when no one really knew that much about HIV and AIDS. And then she had to fight this virus that everyone considered a death sentence. To make matters worse, she also suffered from meningitis, and she had a very low CD4 count around the time of her diagnosis. A CD4 count refers to the amount of white blood cells you have in your body that can fight infection. A high CD4 count is therefore a good thing. Basically, it's what you want. Lizzie's was very low, which means that she became very ill. So it's pretty amazing that she survived. But I think the most incredible thing about this part of her story is that she didn't allow it to create bitterness, but chose compassion instead. We found out and then that it was also because with meningitis, a lot of clients, people with HIV have meningitis. And others don't pull through, others pull through. That's the water in your head when you feel like you're drowning. It's like if you're also on a, a diabetic medication and you, your diabetic is uncontrollable and you feel like you are drowning because your whole body is full of water. It's something like that. But with, with, with the meningitis uh, in the government hospitals, I mean, there's nothing that they give you to put you off to sleep. And you're in that pain. And you got to sit on that stretcher and hold the wall there while they push that long needle up your spine to actually draw that fluid from you. And it, it's not something nice. Also, another thing, I think why too, there was a lot of deaths during that time. It's because with, with the government uh, <clears throat> paragraph or whatever, uh, you had to be below 200. Your CD4 count had to be below 200 in order for you to start the medication. But by then, you had all these diseases. Your knees felt like full of water. You were halfway through TB. You had short breath. You're unable to breathe. You're unable to walk because your, your body is just badly run down if it's below 200. Yeah, well, my CD4 count was actually 100 and something. And I was very thin. If you bang a nail into, your, into, the, into the wall and you hang your towel or your thing there, that's how I, I was. I always make a, a, an example with the nail on the wall. That's how I was. And even taking my clothes in until you can't take it in anymore and they just slip down you. Lizzie chose to be positive about her situation though. She thought of all the others out there who were also living with a virus and struggling to survive. Her passion to help people within the Cato Manor area compelled her to make a bold move and register her own organization. She didn't have formal training, but she was eager to learn. 
I didn't get help, but what I used to do, like with the, most of the trainings, I always made sure I'm next to the facilitator, even when, when it's like a lunch break and stuff. And, I, you know, I'll always want to know more. If, if I don't take my medication, what will happen? And stuff like that. So also learning from the facilitator. And I got lot of uh, information and also going onto the internet as well and finding out more stuff. And then there was a doctor as well that gave me a, a thick booklet that she used to use. Uh, my eldest daughter works for the municipality and then all along we've been, I mean, I was a staff for cost at Westville. Uh, but at the same time, I, we had started this NGO of ours, but we hadn't registered it. We were using Costa's uh, NGO number. And then as time went, I like felt that I'm not fulfilling this dream that I wanted. Because now Costa's giving me a salary and then they're putting the line there. You cannot go to meetings for Masmambi Sana because we are paying you. So then I had to decide now, is it the money that I want or do I want this organization of mine to grow? Because what did I ask for when I decided to start the work? So I had to let the salary go and start my own thing now, work on my own organization to where it is. And then when the province came down to do the NPO uh, uh, registrations, so my daughter told me that they were doing it in Amersdale and she took me there. And then we got it back the same day. So that's how I got my NGO certificate. <laughs> she explains the carefully controlled process to us, showing me the thorough paperwork they do to help things run smoothly. After all, there needs to be some form of accountability when it comes to medicines like these. It's a Sunday and her grandson is also vying for her attention while we talk. So you may hear him in the background trying to speak to his gran as she explains more about the process. In each register, there's 30 clients in each register. And then when they come as well, because we, when they come, it's, it's like quite a lot of work. <laughs> because when they come, like we will write the date there, right? And then this is the manifest. The manifest comes like that with the medication. So on a Monday, my volunteers will go down to the local clinic. So they will go with this. This is all the, the clubs of people we have. So why do they go down with the with the, this year? So they will know which registers to take from the sister in charge's office because the registers stay in the office. Because the clients have to sign these registers as well. We have to do their BPs. If it's someone that's also, if it's someone, if it's also, if they also on BP treatment, we've got to do their BP. We do weights on all of them. So why is the service that Lizzie provides to the inhabitants of Cato Manor so important? I mean, it's obvious that they desperately need their meds and that they can collect their chronic medication from the clinic, right? Lizzie explains that it isn't always so easy when people are having to sit in very long queues. It can make it hard for them to hold down a job. Imagine trying to support yourself, but needing a lot of time off in order to get the medicine you need to be healthy. It's a tough position to be in. You need the medicine to live. 
but you kind of also need a job to live. At Masi Bambisane, they do more than just getting people to sign a register, as Lizzie explained earlier. They also speak to their clients and try to educate them on how to look after themselves properly. So that is for the, the ARVs. Yes. So they start at the local clinic. If they've been on treatment for a year and over, they haven't defaulted the medication. And it's all the chronic medication, not only ARVs. So then the clinic will transfer them out here. Yes. So we we actually a pick up point, meaning that they can go to work and come after work and pick up the medication. So we close at seven, especially for them. And also if, uh, thank you. And also if um, they're unable to come in the week, we are here on weekends as well. So they can come and uh, get the medication on weekends. We also educate them because when we, when we uh, uh, you see, we, we screen for all this year, we, each client. So we do a client at a time and screen for all that. If there's any side effects, if there's any STIs, uh, we also check if they're not pregnant, because we also do pregnant tests as well. We, we speak on uh, contraceptives as well, uh, sexual transmissions, and how to take care of themselves, because it is still happening that the young girls will want to go have free booze to sleep with someone because they can't buy themselves booze. And then they don't know after that was made them pregnant. Earlier, Lizzie touched on just how controlled this process is. And as she explains more to us, it becomes clear that patients really can't just skip taking their meds because they collect from a different site other than the clinic. If they do skip collection, they risk losing this privilege. Let's say, for instance, your medication was sent and you have five grace days, a grace period. So if your medication came on, on a Tuesday because delivery is only on a Tuesday and on and a Thursday from the local clinic. Uh, before we were fetching the medication with my volunteers, but then it wasn't safe because we don't have a vehicle. So walking on the road and we got a lot of these guys that use that medication to do their own. <laughs> to get high <laughs> and mix it with a whole lot of other stuff. So then they decide that they will deliver the medication. So if the medication comes on, on, on a Tuesday, they have until the Sunday to fetch it. If not, we send it back to the, the local clinic and then they will punish them there. Because now they'll say, okay, you're not, you're not adhering to your medication. What have you been taking that you hadn't picked up your medication? But as Lizzie explains, it's not always as simple as it sounds just to come in and pick up your meds. Uh, I think a lot of them rely on the, the SMS that comes from Pharmacy Direct because Pharmacy Direct will send an SMS and say, your medication is ready at Masmambisane. You can go pick it up. And I always tell them, don't rely on the SMS. You have your carrier card with you, your dates are on there. Either put a, a reminder on your phone or on the calendar or something. So don't wait for that phone call. We had all these heavy rains and then the, the lines were down. So people were unable to be making calls. 
So if you carry in your cord, why do you wait to be reminded? Wait for your SMS to go and pick up the medication. And then others uh, is also because of poverty. Because, yes, you can take the ARVs without having food, but for how long? are you going to take? I feel even if you just have a slice of bread and then take the medication, it's more than enough. And then other people don't want to drink water. There's that water that you have to flush out that stays in your body, the dirty water. So that's why some of them will end up with a burning when they're going to urinate. That's for both uh, sexes or they left little pimples or whatever down there. We're also impressed by the sheer size of the community that Lizzie positively impacts. She helps hundreds of people right here from her own home. It's very big. It's very big. Which way did you come from? That way? Westridge. Westridge. All that side. There's Cato Crest on the top that side from Interbeni Hospital down to the bottom that way, to the clinic that side. And then this is Cato Manor, also Bonella, there's a lot of shacks. Right through to Chesterville, there's ch uh, shacks when you're going towards Pavilion. It's a big area, but it's divided into sections. The wonderful thing about Lizzie is that she actually cares about these people. And she gives this community so much more than just medicine, support and advice. From the story she tells me, I can hear quite clearly that she's won them over, becoming a trusted source of help to those around her. She even runs literacy classes Mondays to Thursdays, where 50 kids come to get help with their homework between 3 and 4 in the afternoons. Uh, people are more talkative now. Uh, like, you know, even if they have a problem now, they're not, like, frightened. We're frightened of that woman there. What we're going now? We're going to start talking to her first before we go over there. <laughs> like even if they have problems with the kids, they will come and say, "Hey, uh, please help me," or you know, "Tell me what can I do?" Or I'll say, "Okay, bring the child here." Because with the literacy classes, I take the kids out as well, but then I make the parents uh, contribute towards their bus fee and what they will eat on that day. I started, uh, I think it was 2009, I started with the literacy classes. A lot of the parents have come back to say thank you, the children have passed and the teachers want to know because they said we go to afternoon school. Where's this afternoon school that they go to? <laughs> the cops came here at 5 to 12 a.m. <laughs> I saw these lights flashing through my bedroom curtain. And I wondered what was going on. And then this faint knock on the gate. He was using his key to, to knock on the gate. And then I came out. And there was another small car behind him. We have a problem, Mr. Simkise. The mother's AWOL of this child. The child is two months old. The child is on breast. The daddy doesn't know what to do. He can't find a mother anywhere. Apparently, she always goes on these sprees of hers. Can you please assist and can we leave the baby here with you, which is something that happens all the time. <laughs> they just uh, saps or bring the kids over just to, because there's no way for them to keep the kids at the station. 
So they will spend the nights over here with us. Um, a lot of times uh, they need to be washed, they need to be fed. So we're always collecting clothes and food as well because at any time the blue lights can be at the, at the gate. <laughs> the most astonishing part of this for me was that Lizzie doesn't receive financial support from the government or some other organization. Herself and John run a church and that's how they support themselves as they work tirelessly for this community, despite the fact that they don't have that much for themselves. When we first arrived, she showed us the testing area as well as her office, a small room built onto a permanent structure a kind couple had donated to them. It's not a big space. She does the testing inside her house and the admin in her small office. Lizzie's whole life is lived in this space. She tests her clients here, she counsels them here, she runs her afternoon lessons for the children here. She also spends time with her own family here. We are not funded by anybody since 2006 we've been doing the work. This was all shack over here. This was just a one room like my neighbors at the bottom. It was all muddy and sandy over here. Uh, we didn't even have a shower. It was just a tap bathing in a, in a basin like the people on the farm. <laughs> You're just having those cat washes and no water running down. <laughs> And um, then while I was at Cost, there was a couple there that owned a container world, their own containers. And then they were so taken up in the work that we are doing. And then they said, no, man, you can't be using your bedroom to test the people and stuff like that. They, do you want two containers to be put in your premises or do you want a building? Then I said, no, I, I prefer a building because there's a lot of rats in this area as well. And once the container starts getting old, it starts wearing out underneath and stuff. But with the building, at least, you know, you paint it now and again when it needs painting and stuff like that. So they actually renovated and said, no, they want to do everything like the professional way for us. Because I used to cook also in my kitchen on a two plate gas stove, cooking for the community. John is planting, we go take the veggies from the garden, we make the soup for them, we go get some soya mints and throw it in just to have a nutritious uh, meaty taste. People are very hungry yeah? and uh, we used to have a fan called uh, Food Bank, then it was Food Forward. So like all the rejected loaves of bread from the bakeries, they used to bring to us, but then management changed and we had to pay for the food now, pay like a membership fee every month. Uh, the trucks were not coming in, you had to find your own transport. And then that was too much now for us with no funding and still finding someone with the vehicle to go pick up the food with us and then paying that membership fee. Sometimes you get there, it's just a handful of food and then you actually don't know now who to give and who not to give and then People's eyes are hanging over there because now, am I going to get or am I not getting food today? <laughs> At 55, Lizzie looks young for her age. She also looks remarkably healthy. When I ask her about it, she doesn't take all the credit for her good health. I look after myself and I also think it depends on uh, your support body as well and the support of your family as well. Finally, I ask Lizzie what the most important message is that she would like to share with others. 
It's not a surprising one, but it is a powerful one, especially when you sit in front of this woman who is achieving so much while she has so little to work with. I would say that HIV is not a death sentence. I always speak about my world that is full there. I've achieved so much through my journey with the HIV to where I am today. Sure, leaving Lizzie's place, my friend and I were actually silent for a bit. It was a weird feeling. A mixture of feeling inspired and hopeful because there are people like Lizzie out there working to better others' circumstances. But also something more complicated. Something a bit like guilt. Lizzie wasn't allowing anything to get in her way when it came to fulfilling her dream to make a difference. And right now she seems to be living her dream. I mean, she would definitely appreciate more support to be able to do more for the community. But all in all, she's happy to be able to do something she loves. It gave us some pause for thought when considering our own dreams and what we were doing to make the world around us that little bit better. As I said in the beginning, Lizzie is a jovial person. She laughs easily and she makes you feel right at home in her office. Even when a client came in to pick up meds in the middle of the interview, she never wavered but attended to this person who needed her help, staying friendly and smiling all the while. It was obvious that this client was very comfortable coming to Masi Bambisane and grateful to be able to do so on a Sunday afternoon, a time that wouldn't clash with work hours. Lizzie doesn't have an extensive social media presence, but she does have a basic website, phone number and email address. I know she would really appreciate any support in helping her community. So if you'd like to get in touch with her, please visit her website, katomanamasibambisane.com or give her a call on 072-874-2401. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can find us on Facebook at Foundation Podcast or visit our blog for more details about this episode, including the organization's contact details. Thank you. Foundation was created by me, Simone Scott, with original music created by Wayne Charles Simpson.